Yo, 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 Thought Warriors. Watch and listen to Higher Learning where we dissect the biggest topics in black entertainment, politics, and sports. Twice a week, we react to the most important and timely conversations, often inviting guests to offer unique perspectives. Listen to Higher Learning free only on Spotify. Dave Grohl is here. We are taping this in the Sundance studios. We have talked about doing a pod for like, I don't know, years. It's the whole 2010s. Time. Yeah. It's just never happened. You even did a podcast with my buddy House last year. You did House of Carbs with him yeah, that's a right. year ago. And he even had you before I did. But now now <laughs> Sorry, we're finally buddy. here. 2020. Yeah. We did it. Yeah. I reached out to you. I think it was what? 2014. You did the follow-up documentary series to original documentaries. I think it was called Sonic Highways. It's called Sonic Highways, yeah. And I was like blown away by how good it was. And I was like, I just have to email this guy because I see so many bad documentaries. And this was just a really cool idea for a show. And then that was it. You only did one season and you were done. You know, I wanted to do another. I just fell into that documentary thing. Like I had never uh, aspired to be like a director yeah. or make movies. I love making music videos. That's really fun. Right. But those are like silent films. It's like slapstick, just physical comedy and shit. So... um so the first documentary I did was this movie called Sound City. That was a year before. And that was a year before. And um, not to say making documentaries is easy, but if you have the right, uh, if you have the right people and you have the, the, the right intention, <clears throat> then to be able to go and uh, meet your heroes and yeah. talk to them about something that you have in common um, and then put it all together in you know, in like a, in, in a three part, three act story. Um, it can be really inspiring. And all of this stuff, the sound city thing and the Sonic highways thing that was mostly meant to, um, humanize music and the process of making it. And so that it will inspire others to do. Well, and the roots of it too. And I'm sure everybody has their own favorite episodes. I personally thought, I thought the Seattle and I thought the DC. Oh, the DC one, dude. Where are you from? I'm from Boston, but right. uh, House, whose podcast you did last year, yeah, he's my best friend from college and uh, just an all-time DC, mid-late 80s, yeah. just the scene. So I we had already know, known about those bands when we were in college, and he was listening to Fugazi and even right. the first Nirvana album and stuff like that. And we were like, what the fuck are you listening to? <laughs> but he was years ahead of a lot of us. Well, you know, the greatest thing about that those smaller sort of independent or punk rock music scenes was that it really was like a community. Yeah. And so in the Sonic Highways thing, as we went from city to city, you know, the conversation was mostly about how the environment influences the music. So why did Chicago end up a blues capital? Yeah. Where did jazz come from in New Orleans? Um, How did the Grand Ole Opry become like the mother church, the place where... So, but... In all of those places, you realize that there really was a community of musicians. And I honestly believe that when you put people together, um, like you actually put people together in a space to be creative, really great things happen. And you, yeah. you kind of can't do it by yourself. You need to do it with other people because it's inspiring, you know, to be able to bounce ideas off of each other. And those punk rock communities like the DC scene, God, it was so good. Because and you, nobody, and you had you were multiple bands, but one of yours yeah. was Scream. It was like four yeah. years. Yeah, but it was great because like you, you're on stage playing a show to all of your friends. Yeah, and then you walk off stage, and the next band up are your friends, and now you're in the audience singing your friend song, and they're really like nobody. I don't think there was any. I mean, there certainly wasn't any career opportunity, but I don't think anyone really thought too far outside of just like fucking jamming like like i in dc when i was 16 or 17 um i never learned to read music i can't read music i didn't think i could become a professional musician all i wanted to do was be the baddest fucking drummer in town right like that was it that's what i was rehearsing for i wasn't thinking like i'm gonna make it to fucking Wembley stadium it was like i just want my friends to go like dude that was fucking amazing. That's all I wanted. Well, you learned everything by ear, right? Yeah. Because my son, so my son's 12. And in the last nine months, 
just decided I want to learn how to play the bass. This is my thing. Right. And really got into it, plays most of it by ear, but it's been so fun to just watch him fall in love with music yeah. and listen to all these old albums. And the crazy thing is it's the same albums forever. It's, you know, it's Metallica, <laughs> it's ACDC, it's Led Zeppelin. It just, it, the stuff from the 60s and 70s, it just, it's never going to die. And it's always yeah. going to be for the 12 year old, 13 year old. You were like, what were you like, Rush and a couple other ones where you're just like, these are my bands. I'm I in. was a Beatles guy at first. It was just, that's how I learned how to play guitar, which was just a songbook and Beatles records. And then my stoner cousin gave me 2112 by Rush. And that just fucking changed everything. I was like, you know, so, the, so you were just gravitated to the drummer. Well, it's the first time I really heard the drums. You know, the, in Rush, the drums are like a prominent element in every song. Yeah, and because the way Neil Peart would would uh, write his parts is it was the composition of his drum parts was as integral as um, as a lyric. So, like he's a really musical drummer. Um, and so that's why they're like everybody air drums along to Rush songs, which I happen to think is the, that's that's the key. That's if you if you make a song and people air drum to it that don't play the drums, people that don't know what they're doing. Right. Which usually I, leads to some of the most awkward white people moments of, of all time. Of course. It's, in the air tonight, Phil Collins. Yeah. Yeah. The thing. <laughs> right. If you get one of those in yeah. your life or in your career, then you're gold. dude. That's amazing. But, you know, it's funny that if your son's 12 years old. Um, my mother wrote this book a few years ago about mothers of musicians. Yeah. It's called From the Cradle to the Stage. And she interviewed like 20 different moms, mothers from, uh, mothers of artists from different parts of the country, different genres of music, different religions, different race. They all raised these kids that became legendary musicians. Dr. Dre, Michael Stipe, yeah. Zach Brown, Pharrell, people like that. You'd think that there wouldn't be like any sort of common parallel because everybody's so different, but all of the stories are almost exactly the same. That in this window of 10 to 13 years old, 11 to 13, yep. all of these kids decided they wanted to become musicians. And I think it's because that's, it's that, it's those years where you start to discover identity yeah and you start you start connecting with music you hear a song or there's an instrument or something and you kind of gravitate towards it and decide like oh this is me right like i'm a rush guy now right so i love rush or i start playing the drums and i'm like oh i'm a drummer but it has so much to do with identity and in if if your if your kid gets the bug or the spark and they're like, and they go headfirst into the music thing. And you have a parent that uh, supports or facilitates it and lets them know like, yeah, that's okay. That's you. So you do your thing. Yeah. Um, they honestly will go on and do great things. It's funny that he gravitated to the bass the same way you gravitated to the drums. Dude, like, bass is the best, just so you know. And I don't, I don't hear music one. like that. And I think, I do think there's two types of people when they listen to music and some people can just hear the different things and then other people just listen What do to you it. think of when you listen to music? Are I just you listening listen, to a lyric or are you just kind of... I like I like things that groove. But I also, you know, we're, I think we're the same age. We had an 37. awesome... Yeah, 30, 1969, right? We had an awesome kind of arc, you know, where... We, where when... I, don't, I forget when I started buying cassettes and stuff like that, but we really only had... 12, 15 years of music to buy from, yeah. you know, it was really like late sixties on. And then you start adding, but then like the whole college rock scene starts taking off and then all these yeah. genres popping out and it all leads to, you know, the 89 to 95 stage, which you were prominently involved in. But yeah, um, I feel really lucky. Now I look at, I look at the kids now, there's so much music. I don't even, they, everything is so splintered. They have 60, 65 years of music to listen to. Well, it, and and they do. That's the thing. So. Is that a good thing or a bad? It's almost like it's overwhelming. Well, it could be, I suppose. Because you, it's hard, so hard to have the same common things with your friends because they might be going this way, you're going this way. But in a way, way, that sort of diversity is exciting because, you know, so my oldest daughter, Violet, she's 13. 
she will listen to um, Johnny Mathis. Really? And then she'll listen to Slipknot. And then she'll listen to Stevie Wonder. And then she'll listen to Eloise, who's like an artist from England that not a lot of people know about, but is so outrageously talented. And then she'll listen to, like, she's just so all over. She's trying to get me into the Misfits. Yeah. Like, I never got into the Misfits. So now my 13-year-old kid is like, Dad, listen to this Misfits song. I'm like, what the fuck is good? It makes no sense. But, but it's cool because all of those things, I think it's the volume or the, the amount of music that they have access to is a lot more than w- when we were a kid. But I think the effect is probably the same. So for most musicians, most musicians just uh, learn from the, the, the artists that they love and take whatever it is that those artists have, turn it into their own, and then it becomes something new or something else. And so to hear, like, if my daughter made a record that was kind of like Slipknot, but also kind of like Johnny Mathis, I would fucking buy that shit. Well, it's funny, with that age, they gravitate to riffs. Yes. And I noticed my son, he just has, he's like a jukebox with riffs. Yeah. There's a couple of your songs on it too, but this Chili Peppers have a bunch of them where it's just the, the beginning of a song and he's just trying to just get it, get it, it. Get, get every piece of it right, then start again, start again, and just kind of keep going. And my brain never worked though. I was always a writer. I never, I yeah. never saw the music side of it. But when you when you were getting in the drums though, yeah. it was Bonham, the guy from Rush. Was that was that like the bird and magic of that era? The twenty one twelve record was really the first time I listened to drums on a record. I was like, oh, listen to like I'm like, oh my god, like the Beatles didn't have that going on. They had a whole different kind of drummer. Ringo's just like laying it down, and has a really signature sound and feel like you could tell when Ringo's playing drums and then I hear this record where it's like drums all over the place I'm like oh my god this is incredible is that the kind of kid you were where you were like Like the energy no the energy to just as such a spaz yeah like I've calmed down I'm practically comatose compared to what I was when I was fucking 10 years old I was a nightmarish hyperactive spaz yeah so but having like not learned how to read music I can kind of see it so if I hear a song, um, I, I sort of see the arrangement in my head, almost like blocks or like Legos or something like that. They're just pieces and they're stacked in um, in the composition of all the, how, how it's put together. I don't even know how to explain it, but it's just kind but of- there's see a it. certain level of genius to it though, I think, right? Like I you either have know. it or you don't have it. No, but I do think, you know, it's, if I started to notice it with my kids when, you could tell if they have like a patterned mind. Yeah. You know, when they're young, you in the kindergarten or preschool, they do these little pattern games like apple, apple, orange, orange, apple, apple, you know. And so you can tell if a kid has a patterned mind. If you have a patterned mind and you have an ear where you can like sort of discern or figure out pitch or inflection, pitch is big too, but all of those things, um, if you put that together with a pattern mind, then you'll hear something. It's almost like a, you know, someone that does impersonations or impressions. Yeah. It's pretty much the same thing. If your ear can sort of like signal that part of your brain to do that with your mouth, then you could, you know, you could play a Rush song on a guitar. I went, it's just I, a matter of figuring it out. I hung out with the South Park guys were preparing an episode once and Bill Hader was there and they could just on the fly just imitate anybody and it was some come up and then they they were just like speaking this language i'm just kind of sitting there like, what's going on and they could just imitate anybody's vocal inflection do any celebrity just seamlessly but it was like that right where you just some people can hear yeah. things in a different way but then i mean it also has a lot to do with the drive yeah you know like nobody wants to fucking sit at a piano and have someone smack your hand with a ruler and say, do it again, do it again, do it again. That's just like... The drummer is the most physically taxing of the four. And you see, you know, you see these dudes, like the guy in U2, he's got like the special chair now. And I mean, yeah. it's almost like being in football where you're, uh, I don't know, like a like a middle linebacker or something. You're just creaming dudes for eight, nine years. And <laughs> yeah. then it's like, you can't do it anymore. It'll, like, beat, it'll beat you down. You can't do 35 years of it without. 
You know, I mean, if there's ways to do it, like but you've, like you've taken and postures and stuff. You're, but you you moved to a guitar and you were able to, you know, pick your spots. Yeah, um, I've always been impressed by the physical longevity and stress of that position. Well, you know, this is like I know that. So I'm 51. Like, you think I'm gonna be screaming fucking best of you when I'm 75 <laughs> years old? There's no way. Like, there's just it would be incredible. Absolutely no. I'll try. You'll be in a stool with an acoustic I'll be guitar, in a wheelchair. Yeah, with one of these things. Like, <laughs> so it. So you kind of know. And in a way, you know, rock and roll is a young man's game, right? Yeah. It. It. That. You know, a younger generation and the rebellious nature of someone that, that you know wants to go out and say fuck you and take on the world i'm not that's not where i'm at anymore it's where i was when i was yeah, but you're you're in the part of the journey where all the money is though because you look at the concert tours well, you gotta talk about and that, it's all man. no it's <laughs> it's true you look at the concert tours and it's all acts that have been around because the people that love them the most are the people relatively within 10 15 years of the age yeah and you those know, are the ones who have money to spend on the major tickets so i'm making a documentary right now um, I'm making a few, but I'm making a documentary. Look at you. You're always uh, up to stuff. I'm a spaz, dude. I can't help it. You have to do like five things. Coffee. So um, <laughs> so I'm making a, a movie about vans and van touring because back in the day, um, that's how younger independent bands, the, the van was the tour bus for the punk rockers in the yeah. 80s. Everybody had a van. I, even before, like long before, vans go way back. It was the poor man's bus. Absolutely. And so um, so I've interviewed uh, I've interviewed everybody and you'd be surprised like the Beatles toured in a van. Yeah. Guns N' Roses, Metallica, U2. Those everybody are probably had their favorite memories, right? Just all being trapped together in Absolutely. a small space. Well, I mean, I think that they're pretty happy with the way things turned out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But yes, I mean, I and mean, the most nostalgic. Yes. And there's something about there's something about that time. You know, it's like you wear it like a badge you're like oh shit yeah i toured in a van for five years sleeping on floors eating you know butter sandwiches and getting paid two dollars a night and in a way i can't remember what we we're talking about before that but in a way that the you, movie's more it's the movie's not so much about like really awesome van tour anecdotes which it is there are many, but it's more about the drive to do it. Like, why do? Why would anyone give up everything, uh, quit their job, leave the leave home, leave everything behind just to chase this dream with no guarantee that you're yeah. ever going to make it? And you starve, and you bleed, and you're sick, and you're pissed, and you get taken to jail, and you get in fights, and you blah, blah, and but you always get to the next gig. Like you always get to the next gig, and so you'd be surprised everybody has the same story and it is absolutely a key to success yeah you have to have that fucking thing you have to have the thing if you're just kind of doing it it's just not going to work out but if you have that thing where like i can't survive unless i fucking do this that's what you have to do it's really it's it's pretty it's pretty great to to hear your heroes go back to those years when they were a kid and talk about like, there's nothing more in life that I wanted to do. And then to see their dreams actually come true. And it's those musicians, the ones that started for that reason, I have to do this. I just have to fucking do it. Um, They're the ones, they're all still doing it for that same reason. I have to do it. What the fuck else am I gonna do? Like, I have to do this. If I don't do this, I just feel hollow and I just feel fucking, but, to, to hear, you know, someone like Ringo Starr talk about being in the band in the van with the Beatles, and he talks. He, it's just like he's a fucking sixteen-year-old kid when he talks about it. You're like, and he changed the world. There's so few good movies about bands that get it correctly, and it's like, um, like almost famous is probably one of the most memorable ones. Yeah, and it catches them right at that point when they're about to go from being on the bus every day to all right, it's time to go to planes. So we can make more money and fly around. Did you ever see the documentary Dig? What's it about? It's about two bands. Um, it's about uh, this band called the Brian Jonestown Massacre. I remember that. It's an amazing and, name. Um, oh, God, now I'm forgetting the, the other band's name. 
they had a big hit. Crap, this is gonna drive me crazy. It's gonna come to me. Anyway, it's about two bands that meet. They're both in the underground. Yeah. Um, become like best friends because they're sort of, they're like brother sister bands. They're just exactly they're made to be together. One of them starts to get huge to get hugely famous. Danny Warhol, so that's who it was. Danny Warhol started to get like really big and some success. And the Brian Jonestown Massacre are, are like they're they're insane. The singer is like this really striking, beautiful, fucking crazy figure that's she's like mesmerizing, but he's kind of a little crazy. And the bands start going like this, and it kind of, I mean, I don't want to give away the ending, but it gets to the point where they're not really friends anymore. Now this band that's huge is afraid that this band is stalking them. This is fucking true. Like, wow. And it it winds up in, it. it's not a happy end. Jesus. <laughs> it's one of the greatest fucking documentaries I've ever seen. I don't know how I haven't seen that one. Because most movies, like the end is like, yay, we made it to the Tokyo Dome. But this one is just like, I love amazing. I love all content about bands when they hit that point where they're they're gonna stay together or break up. Oh, everybody gets there. Cause the that that first part, the Eagles part one, which is basically the <laughs> the arc and then the fall, but like it's I'm so into it. It's so good. The all the beats of it. But then there's been some other ones that people like there was one about you too, which I don't even think people know they hit that point where it was like Yeah. And then they end up their manager ends up trapping them in some castle in Germany and they end up making Octone Baby. But it seems like the shelf life is, I don't know, six to 10 years and everybody starts, either the band's going to stay together or it's going to implode. And those are the two options. And if they can somehow stay together, then they can keep going. It's not easy. You know, like we've been a band now for 25 years. But you must stay at a point. We'll say what? You must have hit a point during that oh, 25 absolutely. years. It's seven years. It's usually a, you get the seven-year itch. Yeah. And you're like, why am I doing this? Do I really want to do this anymore? And then you feel the pressure to do it. And you're like, fuck that. That's not why I started doing this in the first place. And then it goes, ah, la, 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 and everything goes, fuck you all. And then you decide you're going to bail. And then three months later, you're like, I miss you guys. <laughs> and then you just start doing it again. I mean, that's sometimes, that's what happened with us. But um, do you remember it, what the big conflict was? Yeah, so this is in like 2000, 2000 or 2001. So you've um, had multiple giant albums at this point. Not really. You know, it's funny. Our our sort of path has been really gradually comfortable. You know, I felt like you were big. I saw you in Worcester and in Boston. Or not Boston. Like back then? Foxborough. We saw you in Worcester and... Was it at that weird, the like weird theater that? Has yeah, this, it was fucking awesome. I remember that. It actually that. was really good. <laughs> the acoustics were good in that because it just went up. I just remember it, it just didn't seem like a place to have a rock show, but it was really cool. Yeah. But no, it's weird. Like, you know, when we started, it we just, it was when we, when we started, it wasn't even a band. It was just a demo tape I made by myself. Yeah, I played all the instruments. I did it in five days. I thought it was really fun. Nirvana was over. I didn't have anything to do. I was depressed. And I thought, you know what? Fuck that. I'm going to just go to the studio and record some shit by myself. Recorded it. I made a hundred cassettes. I made a little, I made a little cover for the cassette. I called it Foo Fighters because I didn't want people to think it was me. I right. wanted it to be like, oh, this new band is really cool. When really it was just one person. And um, then that starts getting out and whatever. And then I call Pat and I call Nate and we start the band anyway then we tour our fucking asses off and then the second album i'm like okay let's make let's this is probably going to be the last record we ever make so let's really make it good so we really worked on that like everlong and my hero and monkey ranch stuff like that 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 like we we produced that we worked on that with a great producer and then after that we were let out of our record contract this is a technicality. The president of the record company, we had a key man clause and he bailed. So we're like, cool. Now we're fucking not even, we can do whatever we want. So we had this easy out that was like, okay, do you want to keep, do we're not obligated to do this. Should we keep doing it? And I had just moved back to Virginia where I grew up and I built a studio in my basement. I'm like, let's just fucking make a cool record and have fun. 
every day we like barbecue at night. We'd fucking shoot hoops in the daytime, drink Coors Light all day long. It was spring in Virginia. We just made this record. And once we were done, then we said to the record companies like, okay, who wants it? And then we did a deal. But it's kind of been like this. But, you know, inevitably, after, at some point, you question why you're doing it. And the the thing that got weird with us was um, I had, we were making a record and it just wasn't working out, our fourth record. Just didn't sound good, didn't feel good, we weren't into it. And then, in the meantime, my buddy Josh from Queens of the Stone Age had just bailed his drummer. And he's like, dude, I got two weeks. Can you come just do the drums on the record? And they were like my favorite band. They were fucking amazing. And we're good friends. We've known each other for 30 years, a long time. I was like, yes, I get to play on a Queens of Stone Age record. So go in and record the Queens. And it was kind of the opposite of what we were doing. What we were doing was like, okay, um, all right, let's just put this bass down. And let's it. But the Queens of Stone Age thing was like this collective lightning bolt of like, cool, let's do this, let's do this. And tracking live and like you're on the same room, like face to face. Like yeah. it was fucking mean. Like it was hungry. It was great. And um, so I go do that and it's fucking badass. I was like, oh, this is good. Those guys are really good. They're fucking yeah. great. This, they are. I really like I've them. always said that they are, when they hit the stage, they're the best rock band in the world. Like nobody even gets close. There's amazing live bands who write powerful songs, Rage Against the Machine. Um, there's amazing live bands that can make an audience go like this, The Prodigy, stuff like that. Yeah. But like for musicality and as a musician, you sit and watch Queens of the Stone Age and you're like, that's not fair. Right. What the fuck? Like everybody in the band is a fucking badass. And they know it. So anyway, so I made that record. and um, So it was almost like you had an affair. Yeah, I was like, yeah, I'm going to do this thing uh, with this other band. And so, and it was the first time I played drums really since Nirvana. Yeah. And I fucking miss it, you know? Yeah. Like, it's hard for me. I can't just go join some fucking band. I have to join a band where I'm just like, yeah, you know, I got to really fucking be into it. And so all of a sudden I'm in it and into it. And the songs are fucking great. And I'm fucking, we're, we're great. And I thought, okay. And then I tried finding them a drummer. I'm like, here's, you could try this guy. What about this guy? And then I thought, okay, before they get a drummer who's way fucking better than me, let's just do one show. And we did a show at the Troubadour. And at the end of that show, um, Mark Lanigan, uh, who's the, one of the singers in the band, yeah. he said, man, it'd be a shame if that's the only time we did that. And so meanwhile, I'm fucking making a record over here that is kind of uninspired. And then I'm over here kicking fucking ass. I'm right. like, you know what? I need to like go do this. And th the guys were bummed. <laughs> they were like, they're like, okay, bye. And it turned into, it turned into something that wasn't gonna, gonna end well. And then the, the Coachella was coming up. Foo Fighters were playing one day, Queens of the Stone Age were playing another day. And, um, I thought it was going to be our last show. I thought like, okay, this is it. This is fucking 2002 or something. Yeah. 2001. Or, and um, So you're right in that six, seven year yep, range. Right there. And then we, and then did both. And somehow everyone just went, oh, okay. And we kept going. But, you know, at this point, it's like, I always say that it's like, we can't break up now. That's like your grandparents getting a divorce. Like, why even? What the fuck are they going to do? You know what I mean? So why not? Like, we just have to just ride you it out. You guys can still sell out stadiums, though. Mm -hmm. In Since places. that's the case, I would say don't break up. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> but you know what a lot of people do? A lot of people, the police did it right. Here's the police did it right. That's the all time In best that, beginning, middle, end. It's the I greatest because they didn't even say like "fuck you, I quit." We're breaking up. They just never said it. They never said a word. It disappeared for twenty fucking years, and then it was like the police are coming back. You're like, oh, my, like fucking all of us were so excited. And then we go to see him play stadiums everywhere they go. Go to see him play, and it's the fucking police. They sound and look like the fucking police. Unfortunately, they intensely disliked one another. That was a problem. It happens. <laughs> it's that creative conflict that makes for good things. That, that's one of the documentaries that nobody's really done correctly. 
The police one? That I'm just... I'm just dying for. And yeah. I don't know if it'll ever happen because all three of them would want input in it and it just, I don't feel like it could ever happen. They would almost all have to be dead. I think the hardest thing would be to find a director that's going to put their fucking hand in that wasp nest. Like, Seriously. I've been asked before, like, will you do a documentary on blah, blah, blah? Will you do a documentary on blah, blah, blah? And they're bands that are just like fucking hate each other. And the story is amazing. But I'm not getting in the middle of that shit. Right. I'm going to take over my well, life. Well, that was, the Eagles one was as close as anyone got because. <laughs> so good. Because they, it's basically Fry and Henley are doing it. Yeah. But there's this whole unsaid piece to it that they allude to, but it's clear the band broke up because of those two guys. Yeah. And they're like, here are these other factors and our other guitarist, he's a pain in the ass and he wanted to be in Victim of Love. And all. Um, but it was really those two guys and the fact that Henley ascended Fry. And initially, Fry sang more of it, and Henley was the drummer who sang sometimes. Yeah. And then it turns out Henley has one of the best voices of, you know, that entire generation. Amazing. And it's yeah. like, hey, you know who should sing the songs? Don Henley. And then you know, Fry, you know what bothered Fry, but they can never like dive into that part in the documentary. That's it's hard. And then the there's band Joe has Walsh, dude. And then Walsh. Well, Joe Walsh is just he's the chainsaw in the hot tub. He's the fucking coolest. Yeah, the coolest. The, um, the king of what was he the king of room trash or room destruction or it's <laughs> i remember being at dinner with him one time and uh everyone was sort of telling stories and stuff and there was some there was someone there that wasn't really aware of joe's history and she turns to joe and she says were you were you like a big partier and joe says he goes <laughs> kind of he goes i was keith moonish <laughs> Well, that was his, he was his mentor. Of course. Amazing. But you know, it's when I was, I didn't grow up listening to the Eagles. I, I didn't either. Like, I, didn't I didn't even really like them that much until the documentary. Either. And I was like, these Sorry, guys Joe. are amazing. Like I never, I, did, I just didn't like them. Yeah. And then I saw that movie and how fucking like, I mean, they were, they were like a, they were like the usual suspects. Like they were fucking like these mean assassin motherfuckers singing like peaceful, easy feeling. And right. when I watched that, I'm like, this is great. I, I think I like the Eagles style. This is fucking crazy. Fry's stories about how he came up with songs where he's just going, so I'm riding in a car with a drug dealer 90 miles an hour, and he says, life in the fast lane. I'm like, that's a song. I'm like, how did, there's no way this happens. That's rock and roll. Yeah. It happens like that. The the uh, the police one is sitting there, but I don't think it will yeah. ever happen. The Nirvana one can happen, right? No, I mean, it you, could happen. You, Absolutely. You did it a little bit in Sonic Highways. You, yeah. you, da you dabbed it, but... No, I mean, you know, things are good. Like if if we re if everybody put their heads together and really wanted to do something like that, I'm sure we could do it. Like it, I don't think it would be it's not impossible. It's just a matter of like who, Isn't all the what, right stuff when, screwed or, up? Why? What's that? Isn't all the right stuff like really, a real issue? Or okay, no? I have to be perfectly honest. I don't fucking You don't even understand it. No. Right. I don't. Like I'm that guy that I have kept blissfully outside of most of the business stuff that we do. Yeah. Conceptually, I have, you know, I've had the same manager for 30 years. I've had the same accountant for 30 years. I've had the same monitor guy for 30 years. We all started in the fucking van and it went and here we are. And so we've learned everything along the way, but we, we learned to love each other and become like this family. So anything we do, we'd like, you know, we kind of protect what we have. And um, so, but I still, to this day, like, I don't want to fucking know about money. I know it sounds shitty, but I never had any when I was fucking young. Right. Mom was a public school teacher, lived in a house in Springfield, Virginia, worked at a fucking furniture warehouse, wanted to go to Parsons to be a fucking commercial art design guy. Too fucking stupid, too fucking poor. That wasn't going to happen. So I played drums in a punk rock band, worked at the fucking furniture warehouse, and was totally happy. Like, I didn't need more. And then when the whole thing fucking went nuts, it was just like, oh, my God, this is fucking cool. Like, I bought a fucking... I remember the first thing I bought, I got 400 bucks. I think I was 21. And honestly, that was, like, pretty much the most cash I'd ever had in my hand. I bought a fucking BB gun, a Nintendo, <laughs> and some whippets. Nintendo. <laughs> so, this is back then. But so... um, But I don't... Like when I work with people, I don't want to have, I don't, I prefer it to not be a business relationship. Yeah. I like to work with people. Um, 
on a personal level too. So that um, you're doing things. My guitar tech, when he hands me my guitar, I don't want him to hand it to me because he's getting paid. I want him to hand it to me so that I go out there because he wants me to go out there and fucking shred. Yeah. And that's kind of how it works. So I don't know, like, I don't know how, I don't know how much my guitar tech gets paid. I don't know how much my fucking tour manager gets paid. And I tell everybody, I don't want to know. Don't fucking tell me ever. So I have no idea. So to me, it's not a business. It's a fucking group of people that have known each other for a quarter of a century that just fucking party. Right. <laughs> it's fucking great. So with the Nirvana stuff, I mean, it's complicated, obviously. It's more complicated than most situations. But um, but anything's possible. If people would actually want to do something, then yeah. But I wouldn't fucking direct it. That's for goddamn sure. What's your... Yeah, I wouldn't expect you to What's your feeling on bands as we head into the 2020s just in general? Where there's lots it of seems good bands. It, the, in, no, but just like, I think if we've learned anything over the years, it's the individual artist is going to get more attention, make more money, the whole thing. Because we have this whole 60-year history of, oh, bands broke up because this one person was bigger than the other people. Right. He's sharing all the profits. He's like, well, fuck that. I'll just do this myself. Yeah. And then also the way, the way I don't know, the internet, social media and all that, it's all geared toward one person. Do you feel like the concept of a band is going to start drifting away? No. no so way. you're optimistic? Absolutely. Okay. Well, just as you said, like kids are listening to music now the same way we listen to music when we were young. Because like, I'm optimistic too, because I, I saw, I see with my son, I'm like, Maybe this circles back and we have like a renaissance of people who want to be in bands again because well, it's like the cool. Yeah, to you know. jam with some. And what a lot, something that not a lot of people think about is um, the, <clears throat> the interaction between musicians while they're playing. So I've been in bands before, like my high school band. Like the drummer was like in the key club and then the fucking singer was like the quarterback of the football team. And then right. the other guy was like the weird nerd that's in science club or whatever. And then we didn't, the only thing we really like connected and had in common was when we played like jumping Jack flash or something like that. So you could communicate with someone without words. Right. right? And there's some socialization in that. And, and it, it sort of teaches you how to, um, how to be with other people playing music. It's a great way to bring people together. It's, it's like a basketball team. It, it I is, think it's, it's very similar. I do too. Just as I have this thing where drummers, I was a goalie my whole life. Like I did, and I, I don't know anything about sports like yeah. at all. I was a fucking, I was a, I was a soccer goalie from the time I was six years old. That totally makes to sense. 13 years old. And that's then a, a psychotic position. And then of course, and then a lacrosse goalie <laughs> oh my God. in high school. Just getting belted. Yeah. But there is something, there's something uh, similar. It's similar to being a drummer. Like this, the fucking buck stops here. Like you're the goalie, it's your fucking ass. And those guys, it's, and in, in a band, the, a band is only as good as its drummer. And this is absolutely true. No question. It's a fucking stupid cliche, but it it's true. I wrote this whole thing, I'm gonna say 2013. Do you you know enough to know LeBron James and I know Dwayne Wade when they joined in Miami with Chris Bosh? It was the big three. And I don't know about that. <laughs> but LeBron ahead. was the best one. But the dynamics were basically like a band. Bosh was this guy who could have been the best guy on a, a good team. On this team, he was the third best guy, so he was kind of the bassist. And then Dwayne Wade could have easily been the best guy on a great team. But now he's with LeBron. LeBron's the lead singer, and Wade's like the guitarist. And that's amazing. It's very. It only lasted four years because at wow. some point, did they just LeBron's kick like ass? I'm, now I'm going to go here? Yeah, they won two titles. They made four finals, but Bosch was the one who had to sacrifice. And then I don't know who the drummer was in this scenario. I guess it was the other nine guys because if the if the other guys don't make some big shots, make some good, you know, you need eight guys to win a title. Right. And that's kind of the drummer. If you yeah. have only the three, but you don't have the supporting cast, you're not winning. I, I don't know if that made sense. Recently, I interviewed The Edge from U2 oh. for this project that I'm doing. And um, and it, he was talking about 
like how you two got together. Yeah. And you know, they've known each other since fucking high school. That's the only band they've ever been in. They're a bunch of Irish kids. Yeah. Didn't like the eighth grade. Insane. Yeah. Nuts. They're like, there's a kid that's got a drum set and whatever. Right. And um but he was very open about how you two does one thing really fucking good. But if but anything outside of the way they do it is kind of a challenge for them. Yeah. You know, like they couldn't go play Frankenstein by Edgar Winter or they could, you know what I mean? Like they, they do that U2 thing, which they fucking invented. Like that is their thing. And the reason why, the reason why it came from them is that it's a combination of specific elements. Like I, I believe in bands because when I go to record demos or like the first Foo Fighters record, that's not a band. That's me playing the stuff so that's one lens or one perspective on how this song should be. When you're in a group of people, whether it's three people or five people, whatever it is, everybody's going to hear and, and, and see the song differently. So it's almost like everyone takes their corner of this thing and just stretches it out like that. And it becomes bigger because it's the energy of all the different people and their vision. Right? In, in movies, it always takes three minutes for them to figure out the hit song. Really? Well, somebody has the riff, and then some other guy, and then all oh, of a sudden, oh, yeah. all of a sudden they're playing, they're playing the finished product. Well, you know, it's. I mean, there's sometimes <laughs> that's how we just finished making a record. Yeah, and um, and some of those songs, sometimes the best ones happen in 45 minutes. Yeah, like I have an idea, and it starts with a drum beat, and then I do a weird percussion thing, put down like a scratch guitar. Really quickly. Okay. Um, let me go write some lyrics really quick. I sit down, I go, blah, blah, blah. and then fucking, and within 45 minutes, it's like, oh my God, that's maybe one of the best things we've ever written in our wow. fucking lives. Then there's other songs that, there's a riff on the new record I've been working on for 25 fucking years. Like 25 years. First time I demoed it was in my fucking basement in Seattle. And every record, I'm like, oh, let's put it on. And I'm like, nah, it didn't work. Let's put it on. So that one, so sometimes it's 45 minutes. Sometimes it's twenty five fucking years. Well, what is some a couple of the Foo Fighter songs initially you worked on when you were still in Nirvana? Yeah, right? the, on the first record, just messing around. Yeah, because well, I wouldn't let anyone hear them. Yeah, I thought it sounded like shit. I don't like my fucking voice. I was like, I just did it for fun. It was it's kind of therapeutic, you know, to be able to write and then perform something. What was Kurt's reaction when you would be like, "Hey, I have this idea for blank"? Well. First of all, I mean, I he, didn't come. Well, he's you know one of the greatest songwriters yeah. of all. That's time. That's a tough one. Yes, so you don't want to fucking say. Hey, I mean, that's the famous here's joke. My idea is what the, what the drummer last thing the drummer said before he got kicked out of the band. <laughs> hey guys, I got a song. I think we should play. So, um, you know, I didn't want to like interrupt the process. We had it good. It's like all I had to do was beat the fucking shit out of the drums like I'm playing disco. Right. Right. Like all the. Never mind that all that stuff, those drum parts, that's the gap band. I, just, I was just explaining this to someone recently. I'm like, oh, yeah, this is gap band. And I'm like, what? I love disco. I always have. The fucking gap band, like burn rubber on me when it's like. But that's all DC. That's the whole go-go influence and all that stuff. Well, there's a lot of go-go. Yeah, I mean, DC and go-go and funk is huge. But anyway. So when you have like those three simple elements, it's like, don't rock the fucking boat. And there was one time where I recorded something that I was really proud of. And I'm yeah. like, man, I recorded this song. I had a studio in my basement. I played it for Kurt and he was really excited about it. Um, and he, he liked the riff and the melody, but he didn't, he didn't really like the lyric. And so, but he was sort of, he didn't want to ask if he could change the lyric because he didn't want to, you know, like offend me or something, which of course I would have said like, fuck dude. Yeah. Take do, it. Do your thing. Fuck it, do your thing. It'll be great. But, um, but we never did. But so I would just do these things and just listen to them by myself and be like, okay, that's cool. And then I try it again. It was almost like I was, you know, wood shedding or whatever, just trying to figure out how to do it. And then when the band was over, it's like, I didn't want to fucking play music at all. Just, I didn't want to listen to music. I was like, fuck music. Uh, this is this is fucking a drag and then i realized like wait a minute that's the one thing that like actually heals me and makes me feel good 
I should fucking go make some music. And I had these 20 songs that I that nobody had ever heard. And then you were off. Yeah. Do you think, because fundamentally, that band, you could have had three people and filled a stadium if you really wanted to. And I think the police were like that too. And there's certain bands where three people can do all the work of a four-person fan. In sports, if we were like, yeah, this NBA team, they only play four dudes, not five, but they're still smoking everybody else. We'd be like, that's amazing. And in music, <laughs> nobody gets credit for that. I always thought that was weird. Well, I mean, fundamentally, you, know, you do need four, but it, like technically you could have had three and been and done like a whole thing. I, okay, so... To, no, nobody's so ever I, brought this up to you. I can well, tell. no, it's interesting because I think that like it's never so planned, I don't think. It's always like, I know a guy with the drum set, or I know I've wrote these songs. Hey, call blah, blah, blah. Let's get some beers and jam. That's kind of, I mean, that, of course, that's like the cool, organic way to do stuff. But um, um, you basically need somebody who would be able to have to do two of, there's four jobs total. <laughs> you would need one person has to be able to do two of the four to have a three-person thingy. Did you see that thing recently? It came out after Neil Peart died. It was on the internet. It was some dude listening to Rush for the first time, right? Not a Rush fan. Oh, it was a black guy. I yeah. love that guy. I've, it, I've tweeted a bunch of them. Oh my God, it was amazing. And, and one of his quotes was like, hold up, hold up. He was like, there's no way this is only three people. And with a, with a trio, I've been in a few bands with only three people. And that much space lends to bigger noise. Yeah. Sometimes when you've got like a thousand people on stage, it's just like, but when it's like a fucking drum beat, a great bass player, a great, and a great song. I mean, it, it honestly just comes down to like, is it a good song? Yeah. If it's a good song, it could be fucking a hundred people or one, but if it's a good song, that's what's going to come through. But, but trios, man, it's, it's honestly a three piece band. I fucking love them. Rush, police, cream. I mean, there's so many that are so fucking good. That guy, I became obsessed with him for like a week. And then I got Jimmy Kimmel obsessed with him. And then I asked him to listen to Dream On because he hadn't listened to that yet. And he took the request that he listened to Dream On. And he just like, he did the whole, oh, like he was having a seizure a couple of times. I mean, those, it's funny how the 70s stuff is just not going to die. You know? And, and like, no. same thing with Metallica. I had uh, somebody told me who's in the industry about how with Metallica every year there's another 12 or 13 year old kid who's just going to be like, these are my guys. Without a doubt. And it's just going to go on forever as yeah. long as we have music. Well, I mean, I remember when I first, like I tried to brainwash my fucking kids with the Beatles. I was like, before you go to Iggy Smart. Azalea, like let's yeah. do fucking Sgt. Peppers or whatever. And um, so then I bought them a record player, a turntable. Which to them is like, you know, it's like a fucking steam engine. They're just like, what is this? Thing? But the, the, and I got the Beatles records, this box set thing of all the vinyl. And I sat there and I watched them listen to records. They're sitting on the floor. The album covers are all over the floor. They're reading the liner notes. They're looking at the pictures. They're turning it over. They're playing it. They're singing along. And it was honestly exactly the same way everybody has listened to Beatles songs right forever like since the Beatles started that's how you fucking do it because it's an experience when you do when you do that i think it should be at least that we sit down they were having an experience like a, a tangible like experience an aesthetic experience where they were like hearing the music and seeing the images and touching things and like that so yes that can still happen i think it will still happen just as People are going to, your son is a fucking, he's a bass player. He's not going solo, dude. He's a fucking bass player. Okay. He, maybe he moves to guitar at some point. I don't know. I don't know how that works. You never know. But he's going to wind up with someone and they're going to jam and they're going to become friends and they're going to write some songs and they're going to get on that's stage. Already been, that's already happening. And they're going to, Well, that? he's got this whole hip hop world too. This. So he's like between these two worlds where he's doing all that. But he does have, he has these two friends that he just, they have sleepovers. You know, they're 12. Yeah. And then they make songs and that's what they do it for eight hours. And I'm like, all right, you definitely have the bug. I'm not sure where this is going, but just kind of stay out of the way and let it go. Yeah. You know? I mean, I think like also you're going to want her a little bit. The, the one of the, well, now he has somewhere to go when he doesn't know 
how to explain himself. Or now he has somewhere to go when he's going to write a song about how much he fucking hates you. Yeah, and, that'll hurt. Well, he, he'll never say it to your face. Dad sucks. <laughs> <laughs> well, he just. Well, you know, recently, <laughs> recently, <laughs> there was this benefit show in Los Angeles uh, for the Art of Elysium thing yeah. that they do every year. Linda Perry was putting the whole thing together, the producer, Linda Perry. And uh, I know her through things. And she called and said, hey, well, um, will the Foo Fighters play at this thing? And it was around Christmas. Some of the guys were out of town. I was like, well, I, we can't do it because some of the guys are gone. And she said, well, could you like, could you just do it? Is there any way you could just do it? It'd be re it'd really help and it'd be, it's a great cause. And she sent me all the info and I was like, yeah, I could probably do it. I said, let me put together a band. And then I was thinking about it. And I'm like, fuck, maybe I'll call Chris and Pat. You know, Chris Novoselic from Nirvana and Pat yeah. Smear. We were in Nirvana together. I'm like, maybe like I'll call them. Well, they, she only wanted us to do three songs. I'm like, maybe I'll call them. So I text them all. I'm like, do you guys want to do this thing? And they were like, fuck yeah. And I he's like, what do you want to play? And there was once when we performed at a Clive Davis party and Beck did Man Who Sold the World with us. Yeah. And Beck's awesome. Like, he's just the fucking coolest. I was like, you want me to call? Let me call Beck and see if Beck's around. I text Beck. I'm like, you want to do Man Who Sold the World? He's like, absolutely. That'd be great. I'm like, shit. And then Annie Clark, St. Vincent, Annie Clark. I'm like, we jammed with her before. I'm like, oh shit, maybe we could do something with Annie. So she's like, what do you want to do? I'm like, fuck, let's do a Sabbath song. The first song off of fucking Sabotage, which is, uh, I can't remember the name of it now. Anyway, like, yes, it'll be great. It'll be super fun. And then uh, I was like, well, I'll call Joan Jett because we jammed with her before too. She still See, got it, by the way. She sang at WrestleMania. Amazing. Still has the pipes. She really, yeah, yeah, she did. She was great. She's a fucking She sang badass, Ronda Rousey's dude. entrance song. I mean, she's got to be, she's definitely older than us. Yes. She still had the pipes. She's a badass. She's the real deal. Anyway, I was going to tell this other story about the Palladium thing, about my daughter. So then I say, I was like, well, maybe I'll have Violet sing a song. My daughter. I mean, she's like, she's also one of our backup singers. Violet. Yeah. So she's. She's played to 80,000 people before. She doesn't get nervous and she's right. great. She can really sing. So I said to Violet, I'm like, what do you, you want to do like a Bowie song or a cover or a Nirvana song? She's like, I want to do a Nirvana song because she's in a Nirvana phase. Unbeknownst to oh, me. Oh, that's phenomenal. Because she's, she's that age and she's that kid. Like the whole Nirvana thing. She's, she's the audience we were connecting to 30 fucking years ago. So she's like, I want to do a Nirvana song. And I'm like, oh, okay. What do you want to do? And she said, heart-shaped box. And I'm like, really? You had to pick the darkest fucking one? Jesus. <laughs> I was like, where did I go wrong? You seem so well-balanced. And um, so I we mean, did she's it. an artist, though. She is, without question, um, a deep, talented, brilliant person. Like, yeah. I don't even think of her. She's about to turn 14 i don't even think of her like she's a kid you know she and i are like this we fucking hang like she's cool she's like have you studied really the whole cool. billy eilish phenomenon yes so violet kind of got into billy eilish a couple years ago maybe a year and a half ago i'm same as ago. my kids like a year and a half ago and uh she started listening to it and violet and i were going and whenever i would be asked to perform at a fundraiser or charity thing i'd always say hey Vi, you want to come sing a song with me and she'd go okay and we'd she would do like a an adele song or um a beatles song or something blackbird so she goes dad i want you to learn this song but let's do this i'm like okay learn the song she's she's just fucking assigned stuff to me go learn this i want to sing that i'm like okay so and it was this song called I Don't Want to Be You Anymore. Yeah. Right? And I'm listening to it. I'm learning it. I'm like, who the fuck is this? Yeah. Like, this is real. Like, this is real shit. Those lyrics and voice. Wow. So I learn it and I say to her, I'm like, who's this? She said, it's Billie Eilish. I said, who's that? She goes, oh, it's this girl. She's, you know, at the time, I think she was maybe 14 or 15 or whatever it yeah. was. And she said, uh, she goes, she was like a SoundCloud thing. And then she's got these songs I'm like, wow, it's really good. And um, so then we go and perform it. And Violet's got a beautiful voice and it turns out great. 
And um, then we went to go see her play. She was playing at this festival thing in L.A. maybe a year and a half ago. And um, and she has this presence, you know. It's a real thing. But what I started to notice was her connection to the audience and the audience's connection to her. Like, it was, that was real. The vibe was like, oh my God, like this is an actual, you know, this is like, this is like, <laughs> this is Morrissey, you know, this is, it's, it's almost, or Fugazi. Like, this is like a real thing, not just music and some lights and shit. This is like something bigger. Um, then we went to see her, I think it was at the Wiltern. And when we went to the Wiltern, that's where I was like, okay, this is a revolution. Like, this is fucking, all these kids um, are, are gravitating towards this because they feel like her. And those lyrics represent something that they connect to. And it's dark fucking shit. You're not going to get that from like the hot 100 person who's singing about something. Well, that, that, but that was the thing that was stunning to me. Like, you know, my daughter plays soccer. We're driving around California on the weekends and she's putting on the pop music station and it's yeah. like Sam Smith, all those type of people. Like, God bless all of them. Um, pretty bad for the most part. Just for me, somebody that really loves a certain brand of music, I'm like, oh, fuck, she's going to put her music on. And then <laughs> Billie Eilish comes on and it was like one of those like, Who's this? You, you know, it, it just stood out in such a unique, crazy way. And yeah. I'm with you on the stage thing. Certain people, Morrissey was like that, um, especially in the eighties. Yeah. Where, and it's funny cause I, I loved REM. I never felt like Michael Stipe was like that. I felt like there was a connection that was missing with him in the audience as brilliant as that guy was. Huh. I never felt like locked in with him. Whereas other people, I felt like locked in. I think you've you guys have done a great job of that. I think that's why people love coming to the concerts. They feel like, you know, they can hang out with you after the show and they're just in. Yeah. Some people don't. The Cure was another one that was like that because I used to love The Cure. You go see them and he was just kind of like, "Thank you," and you go to the next song and he just didn't really care that anybody was there. On our last European tour, of course, I've like listened to The Cure for the last thirty fucking years. Yeah. Who hasn't? They're like, amazing. They're fucking amazing. Their songs are great. Um. I was never like a fucking rabid cure devotee that was just like turned into someone in the cure. Um, and on the last trip, we did this these festivals in Germany over the summer. There were two stages, big stage over here, big stage over here. When that band would end, this band would start. When that band would end, this band would start. Just ping ponging back and forth. <laughs> and the cure were the band on the other end, on the other stage. And so, um, and they're at the like forty year mark at this point. Oh, dude, band. it's like yeah, they represent. They had a forty year anniversary concert in two thousand eighteen. Really? Yeah. Well, <laughs> you imagine? <laughs> well, yes. Okay. So then, so they're over there playing their fucking arsenal of hits that everybody's grown up listening to and yeah. loving. And um, I was so fucking like the, to me. That's that's one of the things I love the most to see these people survive. Yeah. To see a band like Pearl Jam, oh my God, they survived. So many people didn't. And to see them still fucking out there kicking ass. They hit that point. Which point? The breakup point? Yeah. Everybody does, dude. It's like puberty. Mid-90s. It's like it just happens. Your Eddie had to take the band. And once they all realized that, they were fine. Really? Yeah. Because wow. they brought him in. They hired him. Anyway, so fucking Cure playing over there. We're playing yeah. over here. And... um. So I give a big shout out to the cure. I'm like, let's see for the cure. I'm like, nah, everyone goes nuts. And uh, they're playing. You call him Bob Smith instead of Robert. <laughs> go way back with and him. And I look over the side of the stage and he's standing there watching us. Really? Yeah. And it's like, Robert you know, Smith? 60,000 people, big ass festival. And he's on the side of the stage. I'm like, fuck yes, this is fucking great. So there's a break and I walk up to him. Uh, someone's doing a solo or something. And I'm like, hey man, how you doing? He's like, what? And I said, this next one's for you. And we walk out there and I go right into all my life. And like when we do that, it's like it's like a Jaws movie, dude. Yeah. It's like and then when it goes, bam, it kicks in. The place fucking goes insane. It's the best 
feeling ever. Yeah. Every night. It's fucking awesome. So wham, ba, da, 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 get the fucking audience is going bananas. And then we do a runner right off the stage into the van. My tour manager texts me and says, just so you know, Robert Smith is in the last van. He wants to fucking hang in the bar. I was like, yes. Dude, I stayed up with Robert Smith. This is until amazing. 5 30 in the morning. Yes. The only guys in the bar for like five fucking hours. And he's like, so who do you think is going to win the Super Bowl? No. <laughs> he was, he's the greatest and absolutely real. Yeah. Like that whole thing, his vibe, the songs, the lyrics, the way, the sound, that is him. Like that is how he is. But you, so know, you, you never really know. So but, when you see somebody like that on the stage, do you think to yourself, let's just bring this dude out? Yeah, we we'll did play, that with we'll Rick Astley. Do you know when we did that with Rick Astley? I don't think I know this one. Dude. Okay, so who doesn't love Rick Astley? Uh, come on, He's the fucking Rick king. Astley. He's the best. So there was some BBC thing where they wanted all of these current bands to do covers for some BBC special. And um, they wanted us to... And we've Rick-rolled... Oh, yeah. Westboro Baptist Church a few times. Yeah. They come to our shows and they're like, you're going to hell. And so we always fuck with them somehow. Right. right. Anyway, so we're no stranger to never going to give you up. So I thought, hey, let's fucking let's do our, a version of never going to give you up for this BBC thing. I'm like, cool. We got to learn it. We got to practice it because when we get home from this trip, we have to do it. Yeah. Backstage at our shows, we have a fucking jam room to warm up in so we show up to this festival in tokyo the fucking tokyo dome or whatever all these different bands playing and i look on the schedule and fucking rick astley is playing at this festival too we missed him he played before us and i'm like oh my god fuck it and, but it reminded me i was like you guys we have to learn this fucking song because we got to go do it when in a week when we get home let's learn the song so me and taylor are sitting there trying to learn it right the other guys come in I'm trying to figure starting, out how never gonna give you up works as a rock song. I'll tell you, it's the exact same arrangement as Smells Like Teen Spirit. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I'm not joking one bit. There's the intro, there's the drum break, there's the verse, there's the pre-chorus, there's a re-intro, there's the riff. It's the fucking same. And That's so, so funny. Pat starts, we start playing it instead of it going um dun, 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 Totally joking, we start going and 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 it starts sounding like smells like Teen Spirit. Yeah, and it's so funny. We do it ten times in a row, dying laughing. We're fucking cracking up. Like, oh my god, it's the same song. We're gonna let's play it so it sounds like smells like Teen Spirit. Same drum intro. Yeah, and then we have to go on, and we're like, cool, let's go on. So we go on to play, and we're playing, and I look over. This is 20 minutes later. I look over and Rick Astley's on the fucking side of the stage. You could see him from a mile away because he looks exactly the same. Right. And I'm like, oh, fuck. And I, someone's doing a solo. I fucking run up. I'm like, hey, I'm Dave. He's like, hey, man, I'm Rick. I'm like, I know. I said, we just learned your fucking song 20 minutes ago. Do you want to come out here and do it right now? And he said, fuck yes. We had just learned it 20 minutes before. And I said, it kind of, we do it sort of hard. He's like, fucking great. He's like, I'll be fine. Dude, he, we nailed it. Is this on YouTube? Yes. I don't know how I missed this. It is. This is my wheelhouse. We've done it a few times now. But yes, this is, uh, this is two years ago. It was such a triumphant, momentous fucking... I, it was like all the stars aligned. See, I love crossovers, and the Grammys always fucks them up. It's tricky, though, dude. But when it works... And I always wonder why I went to Flea's charity benefit benefit like two months ago and Eddie was there yeah and then they all did like they were all just on the stage together and it was like this is cool Eddie and the Chili Peppers it work who's of course why wouldn't it work? I don't know sometimes yeah, it doesn't yeah, it was like this is Eddie and Anthony together and it was just like this yeah. is something but I I like the crossovers you but know when they go was, bad they go bad it's hard um there was a show Ken Ehrlich that produces the Grammys yeah from Chicago, he um, used to have this show, God damn it, I can't remember what it was called, where that was basically what he would do. He would take two artists, I think this is in the 70s, 
he would take two artists that seem unrelated and put them together on stage just to see what would happen. Yeah. Sometimes it worked. Sometimes it didn't. With the Grammys, it's kind of this, it's a fucking crapshoot. But that's kind of when magic happens. It's like when I fucking, when I see someone in the audience that's got a sign, play guitar and you're fucking my hero or whatever. Yeah. If I'm in the mood or if I'm fucking feeling like this shit needs to like bump up a little bit, I'll look and see someone that wants to play on the song and I'll go, do you fucking know the song? Do you actually fucking know it? I'm like, yeah. And if it's great and a total stranger, if they come up on stage and it's great, it's amazing. If they come up st- on stage and shit the bed, it's amazing. Like you kind of can't go wrong. Well, the best one I think of all time was when Prince, after George Harrison died, oh, stole the show. I agree. That was so funny. And it was everybody's like, faces. Like it was like, look at all these cool guitars. That Prince is like, hey guys, hold my beer. And then fucking it just throws crushes bales. Oh my god, that's how. That's the best case scenario. All right, we got to go, I think. I really have to piss. Yeah, I do too. This was great. We're two old people that have to pee. Thank you. Good to see you.